come the Greeks, led out by their veteran centre-half, Heraclitus. And here come the Germans now, led by their skipper, Nobby Hegel. The Greeks are going mad! The Greeks are going mad! This is Philosophy for Theologians, your regular look at philosophy from a Reformed perspective. My name is Camden Busey. We're very pleased to bring you a pre-recorded episode, a discussion on Thomas Aquinas' second way. This is a continuation of a previous episode with Bob LaRocca. We are pleased to welcome Bob back, who is a student at Westminster Theological Seminary, and he is joined by Nathan Shannon, who is a Ph.D. student at the Free University of Amsterdam, Jonathan Brack, who is admissions counselor at Westminster Theological Seminary, and Jared Oliphant, who is the director of admissions at Westminster. This is going to be a very fascinating discussion, and if you haven't already, please look back at the previous Philosophy for Theologians episode to listen to Thomas's first way. Here we are with Bob LaRocca speaking about Thomas Aquinas's second way. Well, last time I was here, uh, Jared and Jonathan, Jared Oliphant and Jonathan Brack and I talked about the first way uh, Aquinas sets up out about to prove the existence of God in his Summa Theologica, our, uh, Question Two, Article Three, and um, the first and what Aquinas calls the most manifest way involves the prime mover, that from uh, our general sense perceptions that we can apprehend that things move and that things are moved by another, but nothing is moved by itself. And uh, the second way, the one I want to talk about today, is very, very similar. Sometimes Aquinas scholars say that, say that this is actually almost the same argument uh, that involves causality, movement, first movers, and an assumption that, uh, that causes or movement cannot regress into, uh, into affinity. So, uh, I want to first maybe I want to first read the argument, and uh, it's very short, and I'll try to read it slowly and clearly. And so this is the words of Thomas Aquinas, translated into English. It says the second way is from the nature of the efficient cause. In the world of sense, we find there is an order of efficient causes. There is no case known, neither is it indeed possible, in which a thing is found to be an efficient cause for, of itself. For so it would be prior to itself, which is impossible. Now, in efficient causes, it is not possible to go on to infinity, because in all efficient causes, following in the order, the first is the cause of the intermediate cause, and the intermediate cause is of the ultimate cause, whether the intermediate cause be several or one only. Now, to take away a cause is also to take away the effect. Therefore, if there is no first cause among the efficient causes, there will be no ultimate and no intermediate causes. But... If efficient, but if inefficient causes, it is possible to go on to infinity, there will be no first efficient cause, neither will be there an ultimate effect, and nor any intermediate efficient causes. All, all of this is plainly false. Therefore, it is necessary to admit that the first efficient cause, that, oh, sorry, it's, it's necessary to admit a first efficient cause to which everyone gives the name God. Everyone. So, I'm sure you, uh, if you guys listened to uh, our talk on the first way, the prima via from uh, from last time, you'll see that this is almost the same argument. What's right. the difference between the prime mover and the first efficient cause? Well, they are somewhat uh, distinct. Prime movement is a kind of is a kind of causality, but efficient ca efficient causality is a, is a uh, Aristotelian doctrine that you can find in his 
uh, work on physics, which is roughly put somewhat like creation, that you that something which is not there is then created to be there, which it was not there before. And he has uh, he has four causes in all. There's efficient causality, which as I just described. There's formal causality, like if let's say a lump of clay was there, but I formed it into something, I'm causing it to be something. Um, there's material. Uh, material causality, where I actually cause some some things material to change in substance, like if I were to change uh, wood into ash or something right. like that, um, ice into water. And then there's final causality. Final causality is almost a teleology, where something you bring an end and a, a final point. And so here, Thomas Aquinas is mostly working with two different kinds of causality within a given set, and that's very important. He's talking about efficient causality and final causality and their relationship. And that's somewhat the distinguishing mark of this way uh, as opposed to the last one, which is more about just movement. And if you remember, movement is also metaphysically uh, considered. It's not just things that are uh, local motion. It could also be uh, substantial change, like the movement from something, uh, the movement from, like I was saying, from wood becoming uh, becoming ash or something like that. But right. he's not dealing with material causes, which he was dealing with a little bit prior, um, or locomotion. He's dealing with efficient causality and the way efficient causality leads to a final cause through intermediate causes. Okay, so can you make that as absolutely simple as possible? <laughs> For <Right>? Jonathan. <laughs> For me. <laughs> yeah. um, well, I guess the first thing to do would just be to define efficient causality. Okay. Now, this is very hard to define because in most cases, we can't just create something out of the blue. But, for instance, let's say I were to write uh, an essay. In this case, the essay didn't exist, right? It didn't, right. It's just paper and ink, and now it does exist. So I have efficiently caused this essay to exist on, on, on paper. Does that make sense? Yeah. Now, mm-hmm. if I wanted to uh, materially um, cause or change that paper, I could t- put that paper uh, um, up on up on my wall and type it onto a computer. That means, sorry, that essay used to be on paper, now exists in a word processor in a computer. It has now changed, uh, changed, changed its material. Okay. Yeah. Or you know, with a form, I could read the essay. Now the essay is in a totally different form, not written form. It's in a oratory form. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. We could auto-tune the essay. We could auto-tune the essay. That's right. Cool. I could dance the essay. <laughs> Interpretive <laughs> right. dance. Yeah. And then maybe even my final cause out, the final cause here would be the essay being in your brain, something you now understand. And that was the point of the efficient cause in the first place. Hmm. So the point of me writing that essay, let's say it was a personal essay. Let's say you know, uh, we have a friend, Joe, who has a uh, heretical view or something like that. We don't think is very good for a Christian to think about or, you know, a Christian to uh, consider as as valid doctrine. We could write an essay. Let's say it's just a short paper, and we want to change his view. That that change, let's say our essay is actually persuasive, would be the final cause. The efficient cause is the final cause. Does that make sense? So what Mm -hmm. Thomas is saying, just in that essay, so in that that example I just gave about the essay, I I I am the efficient cause of the essay. The essay is now an intermediate cause, which then creates a final cause. Okay. You see there's a given set there, and this is very important because this is classic Aristotelian philosophy that 
will escape someone who, uh, you know, someone from our own context who's not familiar with it, is that th- that kind of set of causality, first causality, intermediate, and final, is kind of a given. That's almost like a, a rubric or a paradigm they were working with. Yeah. Right, right. And so you can see him working with this here. He's, he's just assuming that, well, of course, there's always uh, a first cause, and of course, there's always an intermediate and a final. But if you don't have one, you can't have the other. Hmm. And uh, that's why that's an interesting point. We'll get down to that in just a second. Is that's why he'll he'll reject infinite regress is because well, that destroys one of the sets. You can't just have right. intermediate causes. If you don't have inf- if you have infinite regress, then you don't have an intermediate cause. Well, yeah, or that's a his final point. Cause. Is that well, an infinite regress tries to say all we have is intermediate causes, mm-hmm. but we've already because the set the way that works the almost like the the rubric he's working with, you can't have in- intermediate causes without a first cause. Right. So that kind of gets me down to my second point is within that, within that set that I was just describing, it's not only um, something that's temporal or logical, like a sequence. This is also built upon, and this is very medieval, a metaphysical hierarchy. Medievals love metaphysical hierarchies. Everything is on a metaphysical hierarchy. And so as you'd guess... The first cause is metaphysically, or you could say just uh, its place in reality, is of, is of a higher quality than the intermediate cause. It's, it's a higher being. It's a higher thing. It's a higher cause. So the first cause is almost a more primary cause. That's why he even just call, he says he uses the word the first right over here. He says, now an infant... Now an infinite, uh, sorry. Now an efficient cause is not possible to go on to infinity because in all efficient causes following in the order, the first is the is the cause of the intermediate. So he just names it the first, and that first for him is metaphysically superior. Mm-hmm. Now right. he hasn't attached to it all that the, all that he will in the subsequent chapters on his doctrine of God to say that it's actually simple, non-composite, infinite, unitary, uh, and all you know, perfectly good, all those things. Mm-hmm. But right now he's just calling it the first, and later on. Right at, right at the end of this argument, he'll call it God. Yeah, and this, it strikes me as you're saying this, and I think we touched on this a little bit earlier or for, with the last episode, but um, a lot of this is, is not really even an argument, but more of like a description. Right. You know, I mean, it's, it's taking some things for granted, and so it's not supposed to be the definitive word on, um, yo, this, you know, every unbeliever is going to believe this. It's more like, this is how we can talk about it from within the Christian tradition of, and, and how it makes sense. Right. So he, he's got different purposes in mind than some people might think as, you know, bulletproof proofs. Yeah, and that's, and that's the big assumption here. And uh, you can see how, can, how they would see Aristotelian uh, physics, that's where a lot of this is coming from, is so conducive for a Christian worldview. Because look, look how Aristotle's set set right here of causality is just so useful in the mind of someone like Thomas Aquinas to to prove a first efficient cause, which he would call God. And I mean just just uh dealing with that set, just to to round it off, uh the place of final causality is that what the efficient cause actually is meant for, the meaning of causality, is within the final causality. Yeah. So you can't look at intermediate causes because Intermediate causes have no meaning within themselves. Mm. And so that's what he would say about all science. Science is, is an attempt to find out ultimate causes, where things come from, what they are, how things happen. And how, when you ask, like, well, how did that happen? You're going to come to an ultimate cause of some mm-hmm. sense. 
And so metaphysics is the highest of all science because it has the most highest and most ultimate causes. Like, you know, for instance, if I was a psychologist and I would try to figure out, well, why do you have this certain psychological problem? I would be successful in as much as I would find out that that was caused by maybe a certain relationship you had with your parents. Right. And I found out the cause. And that's what science is supposed to do. And that's, that's the great bounty that Aristotle gave to the development of sciences because we still kind of think like that today. That's also interesting because uh, if you just have an infinite regress, it, you have to come up with a whole new different um, criteria for the word meaning, for anything right. to mean anything, right? Because it's sort of uh, an application of, well, if there is no final cause or primary cause, it's then just stuff. it's just, it's vanity. Yep. And so it's just Ecclesiastes, it's just Ecclesiastes, but in right. sort of an Aristotelian and, and I think that's, I think that's why this is somewhat helpful. But as Jared was kind of hinting at, I think this is just total borrowed Christian capital. Right. That this is assumptions of what the world should be like, but it gives you no reason that to say that this is actually how it is. Hmm. Yeah. And, um, I mean, that's, that's the interesting thing is that he's borrowing Christian capital to have an autonomous argument to prove Christian claims. Yeah. Right, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. It's just it's kind of I was thinking about that as a, you know, as I was preparing for this. I was like, yeah, that is a an interesting situation. Uh-huh. That you ended he ended up where he started with um you know, uh Christ, Christ, oh, not Christianity. He ended up with a theism because he was already kind of somewhat presupposing an ordered theistic world. Right, right. Um and so just Talking about, we're talking about such a hierarchy that I just described between first causality, intermediate, and final. Um, is positive the full meaning of causality, like you were saying, Jonathan, is that this is where meaning comes from. We want to look to where things have come from and where they're going. Mm-hmm. And that's how we describe any meaning behind anything. So, and that, and let me read you this, uh, let me read you this uh, quote by a, a man who I'm taking a class with named John Whipple. And uh, he says in his whip fam- that out. <laughs> he says in his famous, famous uh, book now, the metaphysical thought of Thomas Aquinas on page four sixty one, and he pretty much gave me exactly what I was uh, kind of telling you right now. He says this on four sixty one. Four sixty one. Once again, as I read the argument, he is not concerned here with refuting the very possibility of a beginningless series of essentially ordered caused causes but with showing that such a series is meaningless and has no explanatory power unless one also admits that there is an uncaused cause. Mm -hmm. Um, It is in this sense that I take the usage of the term first. And so he's saying, well, if you want to have any meaning in this system, if this is going to have any significance to you, you have to have an uncaused cause. Hmm. And that's the very thing that he's trying to prove. It sounds like Whipple, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but um, he probably at least has in the back of his mind the, the Kalam cosmological argument and William Lane Craig's Maybe. Uh, see if he kind of revision or, or you know updated version of it. Um, and we can get to that, to that later, but um, that argument, the Kalam version, specifically addresses an, an infinite uh, regress um, series of, of events. Uh, we'll talk about that. I just wanted to bring up one uh, interesting um, illustration that I was thinking about. And I w- after that, we can get into the Klam argument uh, by William Lane Craig. Um, but the, what I was thinking about while I was preparing for this and reading some Joseph Owens and Whipple is um, 
I kept on thinking of the board game that we used to see on TV when perhaps we were kids. Or Hungry Hippos. No, Mousetrap. <laughs> oh, yeah, Mousetrap. Okay. Yeah. And it's just, that's exactly, the, that's exactly what he's trying, he's trying to show. That's a, almost a perfect example, is that Mousetrap is a whole series of efficient causes. Or, sorry, of, efficient, of, of, a, of intermediate causes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but such a... But so, what does it mean? Yeah. But such a, such a system of intermediate causes cannot start without some kind of first efficient cause that gets the ball rolling. And nor does it mean anything unless that trap falls on the mouse, which is the final cause, which actually has significance within the game. But if, it, if the whole game was just a bunch of movements, those movements <laughs> yeah. would be meaningless for the game. Yeah, pretty anticlimactic. A lever pulls up, and you're like, oh, okay. oh I thought, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, so yeah. it would be, it wouldn't make any sense. You're like, oh, well, it's just some stuff's happening. <laughs> I guess that's what oh, I paid money for for this game. game. Yeah, it's a trick so game. It, that's kind of what that's kind of what he's getting at here is that unless there is a meaningful cause in the beginning, one that's at a first a first cause, unless there's a final cause that makes these movements significant, just like Whipple said, it is meaningless, and that's uh, that's I think somewhat putting some embroidery around his argument, but I that's think that's kind of where, where it's going. I really appreciate your connecting, um, connecting Aquinas with mousetrap with, with Aristotle. Oh, I thought you meant with mousetrap. <laughs> no, with <laughs> mousetrap. I really appreciate that. I've been doing a lot of thinking yeah. about mousetrap. I've been trap. playing a lot of that game, and my wife keeps telling me I'm wasting my time. But <laughs> I'm totally vindicated, vindicated now. No, I I really appreciate the connection you made. Um, my question with Aquinas has always been, what do these proofs or ways amount to? You know, because. You know the 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 ebb and flow of the history of these arguments doesn't really attest to their strength, right? right? And so you wonder, well, and 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 plus, you know, Aquinas did not believe in God on the basis nope. of these arguments. He believed on the you know on by the authority of the church, right? The, right, and the authority of tradition and and so on. Um, but the way you have tied in Aristotle reminded me of uh, Aquinas's apologetic role yeah. in recapturing you know, the greatest wisdom that uh, man had known until then uh, for the Christian church. In, or, in, or, in other words, what he wanted to do, in my understanding of the, the history of, of, of Thomas, was he was sort of brought into the scene uh, to respond to the Islamicization of well, Aristotle. It's interesting. Most of these arguments, I think maybe it's about like three out of five of the five ways you mm-hmm. can find already in his Summa Contra Gentilis, right. which was meant for missionaries going down at that point was more Spain. And all these can be found in book one, I think Olay. it's chapter, six, six, uh, chapter 13. And so they were there. I think that was written a, a good 10 years before this. But that is totally meant for apologetics because at that point in history... The, uh, you know, those, those, uh, the, the is, uh, Islamist apologet- apologists were right. just far, far more philosophically trained than the Christians. Yeah. Right. Well, they had Aristotle and, they they, had, and, yeah, they and had Rome Aristotle. did not. Yeah. And, and so that, see, my feeling now, you know, thinking through it after you, after you, you know, uh, so eloquently took us through Aristotle's theories of causality is that I can see now what Aquinas is doing is a, a negative apologetic, showing that Aristotle doesn't work unless you have presupposed a self-sufficient God. He's, he's not really... I mean, he does that for us, but yeah. for them, they wouldn't, 
they wouldn't right. get that. What then he's more so, who? I think this is Joseph Owens. Joseph Owens has a great way of thinking about the kind of question you're asking. Why is, why is Aquinas trying to prove God this way? And for right. him, it's almost like he, it's, he described as a detective who knows somebody's a thief. Let's say I know that Jared did something, but I just can't prove it. Mm. Sherlock Holmes. Yeah. So what he wants to do, even though he knows it, almost like a detective, he wants to prove it Flashbacks. almost in a court, a court of law. And that his court of law is the law of Aristotle. Right. And in the end, he, I think he does fail because the very God of whom he knows is not the God he proves. Um, God is so much more. Just saying God is a first efficient cause is quite deficient in the face of the, our majesty. Right. I think I, yeah. is what you're saying is that um, if you just took, if you just removed the last clause, um, you know, and that is what you, what most people refer to as God, then all you've got is that, you know, when we hear that term, the G-O-D, at the end of the phrase, so all of a sudden we import a host of Christian truths. Yes. But if you remove that, then it's and all he's really proving is that you have, an, you have to have an ultimate cause, and as you said, you can't have only right. intermediate causes. Mm-hmm. Um, so Yeah, I was yeah. going to say, how does this, uh, based on what you're saying, Nate, about uh, Aristotelianism and Islam, how does this work as an apolog- apologetic towards Islam if an Islam would hear it and say, yeah, yeah, so what? Well, it's right, interesting. Most right. of this has been ripped off in Islam, uh, a, a, Muslim, okay. a, poly, a Muslim philosopher anyway. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Most of the second argument has been taken from somebody named Avicenna. Right. Yeah. And so it's already Muslim. Hmm. And so this kind of thing is not meant to so much because Muslims in more Spain at that point were theists. So why is he having these yeah, theistic? Yeah, you would think so, yeah. It's because it's all, everything afterwards. It's saying, well, yes, I've just showed how such a oh, okay. being exists. Now let me show you what an ultimate being looks like. See, there's the problem. You have to read more. Which, you know, I'm not going to do. But the rub for Aquinas is how do you connect the two? Because it all makes sense up to, I think it's what, chapter 28 when you start talking about the Trinity. Because now you've just proven that such a God exists, that he's simple, that he's one, that he's eternal, that he's pure goodness, that he's pure truth. You've proven all these things, but you're not going to prove the Trinity, nor are you going to make it philosophically make sense. Mm-hmm. And so what point of contact have you actually made with the, with, with, with the Muslim person living in southern Spain? None. Right. You have not, you, you've, just, you've pretty much found common ground. And uh, you've conceded a host of their their theological precepts, yep, and you, then you, you say, then you try to add the Trinity. Then you to just it try to add the Trinity, and they have no the they have no reason to believe. Yeah, they have no reason to believe in it. Right, um, based upon at least is at least this kind of thing. Um, and that's what that's what the genius of Aquinas is that we still use so much of what he gave us in our theology proper today. I mean, that's just we all have such a debt to his philosophical mind but not as an apologist. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's the difference is that, you know, this is one of those things where you just, you have to take the, take the good and leave the bad. And that, um, yeah, his apology. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and the other thing we, like we talked about yesterday is that these uh, are given by Thomas as preambles to the faith and Bavink switches those around geniusly mm-hmm. uh, when he says that, no, uh, our faith are preambles to these. Right. 
and that's what that's I think that's what gives them value because actually as a as a theist as a Christian this makes sense to me right it makes sense to me how God is being the beginning and the last gives meaning to my any kind of historical causal horizon that's right yeah eschatology right precedes soteriology and that's that's just it because there is an end Mm-hmm. And uh, there is a final cause, and that final cause we actually can name it outside Aristotelian cause uh, uh, terminology as New Jerusalem. Yeah, and that's beautiful. There's something that, to me as a Christian, that's now has the fragrance of redemption instead of the musty air of a of the University of Paris. Ooh, I was getting poetic. Mm. Anybody taking notes? <laughs> <laughs> the University of Paris. Well, that's where a lot of this stuff was going musty down. Air. Yeah. Musty air. Uh, yeah. yeah, it must have been. Lots of B.O. and that medieval yeah, hygiene. Right. Yeah, that's kind of, yeah, it was yeah. just yeah. sitting next to people. B.O. and cigarettes. Yeah. Um, yeah. So um, we should get into, uh, speaking of Muslim... Uh, Speaking of Muslim philosophers, uh, Al-Ghazi gave a rebuttal to a lot of these kind of uh, Muslim um, proofs for God. And uh, it was appropriated by William Lane Craig as the Kalam argument. And I'll hand that over to Jared. Sure. Yeah. Um, This is – I've just really kind of glanced at um, what Craig has been doing. He's kind of just known for the Kalam cosmological argument. Um, he's done the most work on it. So um, I'd kind of like to just introduce the topic and the nuances that, that he goes for. Um, and so uh, that's just a, a kind of footnote to say this isn't supposed to be exhaustive, but just, you know, an introductory um, segue into looking at a couple of these aspects that Bob's already mentioned, but um, just kind of in a modern context. Um, so he, this is taken, uh, a lot of what I'm doing is taken from this article uh, that he wrote in 91 called The Existence of God in the Beginning of the Universe. And um, interestingly, we can go into this if, if we want, but um, there's been a whole lot of buzz this past week over um, Hawking's new book called The Grand Design, where um, I'll just, I'll read a quote from it. Um, uh, it says, because there is a law such as gravity the universe can and will create itself from nothing. Spontaneous creation is the reason is the reason there is something rather than nothing. Why the universe exists, why we exist. It is not necessary to invoke God to light the blue touch paper and set the universe going. Um, so it, it kind of relates to, you know, origins of the universe, which is what this argument really speaks to. Um, but we can that let that be parenthetical it's, for now. It, and it's interesting that that Bavin quote I brought up last week, I mean, last time as well, when he said that there are no atheists. There's just arguments about the nature of God. Hmm. For him, it's gravity. For us, it's the self-sufficient <laughs> triune. Yeah, <God>. right. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, we can we can talk about that a little bit later and just origin questions. But um Craig starts out uh, in his introduction. He says um, the first question that should be, uh, which should rightly be asked, um, asked Leibniz is why is there something rather than nothing? That's the most basic question that we're addressing here. Um, Leibniz actually answers this question by arguing that something exists rather than nothing because a necessary being exists, which carries within itself its reason for existence and is the sufficient reason for the existence of all contingent being. Um, so he's he's kind of again jumping off what Bob is doing, but there's a couple nuances. The first one I want to point out is that uh, he makes a distinguish or he distinguishes between a potential infinite and an actual infinite. 
Um, and he says, a potential infinite is a collection which is increasing toward infinity as a limit, but never gets there. An actual infinite is a collection in which the number of members really is infinite. So uh, let's say it's an infinite series of um, actual apples. That, that would be an actual infinite. One seems to be uh, uh, an objective view of infinite as the infinite itself, and one is the other is somebody even trying to count it or something like that. Kind of. Yeah, we'll we'll get into it. Okay. Um, but he said uh, Leibniz says that um, he says it will be remembered that uh, an essential property of a necessary being is eternality. This the necessary being that he's talking about that Leibniz uh, wants to defend is God. Now the objection to all this is that the necessary being um, can actually be the world itself. That there's the possibility of the world um, always. Uh, having existed, that right. there wasn't like a, a term or a, a first point. Um, and the reason he brings up the difference between potential infinite and actual infinite is because he gives all these counterexamples to demonstrate, Craig does, uh, that there can be no actual infinite. Um, I'll give one example and maybe we can talk about that. He says, um, let us imagine a hotel with an infinite number of rooms and suppose that all the rooms are full. And so someone comes up to the hotel and says, hey, do you have a vacant room? And he says, yeah, sure. And so everybody just slides over. Now, there are all these questions that, are, that arise as a result of, of that weird phenomenon. Um, number one, is the set now an odd number or an even number? Um, how do you figure that out? He says, um, also, let's say if, let's say an infinite number of people came up to the hotel and wanted um, rooms, he would have to say yes, because it's an infinite amount. So these are all just complicated ways of saying that in actuality, in reality, there can be no um, series of infinity with physical objects. It's just impossible because of all these paradoxes that occur. Um, So he demonstrates that that, that means that there can be no beginningless series of events because there would have to be a beginningless series of physical objects as well. Um, that's his main point. And that's, again, there's so much nuance to that, but that's one of uh, his nuances that he um, supports really for this argument. And so he's rejecting it on the basis of paradox. Uh, well, he—I mean—he would say contradiction. Okay, contradiction. Yeah, that's that you can't have those absurd examples. Because uh, a guy like Joseph Owens would say that there can be an infinite amount of intermediate causes. Hmm. But that doesn't mean it still doesn't require a first cause. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, that, it seems to that, me. Does yeah, that make sense. It does make sense because I, I, you know, I thought I read somewhere that even Aquinas, said, I, you know, I, I'm not sure, but it. even Aquinas said that. The world can have existed eternally, but it's still contingent. Right. I mean, he's, so he would say yeah. philosophically, it can be shown that the world is eternal. And another point, refuting people who think that, really, he says it can't. That's another issue for the other day. But philosophically, that's where this is coming from, is that uh, the world, it, intermediate causes can be, um, can be infinite, the only problem is, is that you have no reason for them being there, and that's what you need. Right. You, have no re- you need a first cause which, which can explain their existence, and if you don't have that, then their existence is, as we've been talking about, meaningless. 
Mm-hmm. So does that make sense? So you can yeah. still have an. Now we can't get our minds around that because we can't get our minds around infinity. Mm-hmm. But an infinite amount of causes does not mean that that is a self-contained set. Mm-hmm. And that's, I guess, that's that's the strength I think behind the second way. And um, well, it, in terms of let, let's take the stance of just an unbelieving position. Um, what happens if if that series is meaningless? Okay, I think they're completely right. prepared to accept that. I don't think that's an argument against anything, really, For, um, philosophically. In, Tom, in Thomas's context, it is. No, I know, but I'm saying let's yeah. let's not say that Thomas's gospel, and let's just think outside, you know, and just in quote unquote philosophical categories. Yeah, I would say that it's still both the uh, William Lake Craig argument and Thomas Aquinas's argument. There's still and, and also uh, Dawkins' argument are all mm-hmm. descriptions. It's like, well, they could be, it could be, let's say it's, the world is infinite. It could be that it's like, well, it could be, it could be, for, so no, what you're doing is you're having philosophy dictate, and it's like, as long as um, the world can fit this philosophical argument, then that's the way it is. As opposed to our apologetic right off the bat is going to say, um, no, it's not a could, or it's not going to be, we're going to weigh sort of a, a philosophical logistic game to see which argument wins out as far as whether or not God exists or is the first mover. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's not the route we're going to take. So th- I think that's, that's one thing that we would say to um, an unbeliever there as, as, a po- as somebody who would respond to, well, you know, the world can be meaningless and I'm mm-hmm. okay with that. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, the world isn't meaningless to you. Jared, what I was saying before is that it, in Thomas's day, to say something does not have a cause, like the infinite amount of intermediate causes, obstructs and denies the existence of uh, you know the principles of science. So that's what he's he's pushing him to almost like a impossibility of the contrary argument. In some ways, mm-hmm. is he saying, oh, well, if you're going to say that this infinite set of causes has no cause, then why don't I just do that with all science? Why not I say that, oh, I have no cause. If you can say that about infinite sets, it's the same thing as me saying I have no cause either. Mm-hmm. Right. It's putting so, somebody to in a, the extreme irrationality. Yeah, I mean, if and you're that's consistent, what he's you'll he says, do that. All yeah. of which, in the end, he says all of which is plainly false. It's plainly false that I don't have a cause, and it's plainly false that something cannot have a cause. Yeah, I mean, I I get that, it, you know, that his observation is we don't operate that way. Right. But that's different, again, for, than saying it's impossible or that's this is not the case philosophically. People can do things that are inconsistent. That doesn't mean that they're either true or false. Well, that's that's the difference is that he's 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 looking at experience as a as a as a principle. That he, right. His philosophy, the strength of his philosophy is that it doesn't it tries its best not to violate human experience mm-hmm. and so that's that's where he's that's where he's coming from and um that's where rationalism especially descartes rationalism which is only not starting with human experience but only rational categories always had so much problems with Aristotelian outlook yeah because at certain points it just it doesn't it doesn't fit together smoothly but right. it does when you're actually perceive you know when you're just it's i mean it's always been said that aristotle is the philosophy of experience yeah it's, yeah, I, yeah, maybe. Um, I, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm not just saying in the history of thought. That's just right. what I mean. I'm, I'm not, I'm not as, as quick to defend Thomas. I think he can, he's helpful in a whole lot of areas. I mean, um, but really, what I, what, what I wanted to ask is, um, 
can there be an an actual infinite you know in the christian schema is that even possible yeah god but that's it you mean a created infinite yeah a created infinite um no i mean there can't uh, that would be different um designations of what is it the infinite the term is, it's olive right that's what mathematicians give the uh yeah the quality of infinite too it's olive the letter know, a in algebra. the hebrew alphabet anyways um not exhaustively right um but if it's if it is created and if something's infinite it, there's still contingency to it in some aspect it's hard because there's different ways to look at infinite like yeah. uh, when we yeah. say god is infinite um i think that's a metaphysical claim it's a theological one but it's based upon metaphysical principles meaning that god's being is infinite now since god's being and our being is completely distinct that means it's not like if if the universe is infinite and god's infinite they're going to be taking up different space because that's not how uncreated yeah. and created being works <laughs> so metaphysically it makes sense how there can be two infinites if those infants are kept on a completely different sphere mm-hmm. i mean that works within a metaphysical hierarchy and that's why it works for thomas is that he's not worried about it because there is that there is that distinction mm-hmm. yeah and just my my whole purpose in, in bringing this up is i think there um needs to be a lot of Christian work done on just the concept of the infinite. Um, I mean, one of the things that I noticed here is uh, the infinite is treated almost like as a set, as a closed set, so that it's something that you can either add a number to or take away from. And I think that that violates the yeah, whole concept of, of infinity in the first place. Yeah, that um, was so my feeling. It's a complete uh, confusion of categories. Yeah, exactly. He just It just seems to me from the example, I haven't, you know, but it seems to me all he does is prove that infinite cannot be contained by the finite. Do you know mm-hmm. why? Do you know why I think that is? Hmm. <laughs> Raising my hand right now. Okay, Bob's raising his hand. Yes, Bob. Because he because he's not thinking metaphysically. That for him, infinite is not a property of of a being. It's a right. pr- it's a it's a, a number, or it's a you know it's 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 a it's a it's a it's a logical number. So mm-hmm. when you think about it metaphysically then it's not something you add to or you take away from it's a property or it's a, it's a you know it's a it's a property of 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 being well let's think about it this way there's there's zero and there's negative 1 and that can i mean really that can go on to infinity can it as an integer right as a number there there's such thing as as that going on forever and then there's 1 and that going on forever i i don't think there's a limit that you can but say you, okay, we got to stop here. That's a different kind of infinity than when you're taught when you say. Oh, I know. I'm just. I, I'm not arguing that it's different right. or the same. I'm the, arguing you're, that you're, it, it you're, you're that using is the right. Infinity right. that uh, Craig is using, and I think the infinity that uh, most Christians use when they use when they describe God are different kinds of infinity. We're not saying that God. When I say that God's infinite, I don't say that God goes on forever. Right. I'm saying something about his. His being, about his being, uh-huh. yeah. yeah, and that's that's the difference. You know what I'm saying? Like, oh, uh, I I completely know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, the immensity of God, which always is a tricky doctrine, but that somewhat gets at a somewhat analogous between the kind of infinity that Craig's talking about. And well, and the reason I brought it up was, um, you know, the universe at one point didn't exist, and at another point did, right? right. Um, and what what he deals with in this paper that I just brought up is. Um, say time t is the first 
say, moment that the universe existed? Can you not then project backwards and say, could the universe existed before the universe actually existed? That's when you get into yeah. these paradoxes that, you know, my mind just hasn't sorted out yet. I'd love to do some work on it, but that's why I wanted to bring it up is because it's not as cut and dry sometimes as we think. Um, it needs to be thought through a little bit. I mean, no, yeah, um, you know, we've, we've discussed concepts of time before. I think there's a certain concept of time here called eternality that I, I probably wouldn't go with either. Um, I've, I've mentioned this before. I think, you know, my um, concept that I like to go with in terms of time is just the measurement of change. That actually is very similar to Aristotelian as well. Yeah, but I think all you need for time is just one object measured against another object. Say, yep. you know, us and the sun. Or, um, you know, when you get very uh, precise, it's us and the revolution of atoms or something right. like that. Um, so all those are inherent in talking about uh, something that is beginningless or endless. Yeah, it's very, it is very difficult. It's, it's difficult because all these words have been used by philosophers for like, you know, 20, uh, 2,500 years. Mm-hmm. And just sometimes they take on different meanings and it's just very complicated. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're fraught with uh, paradoxes. Yeah. One thing I'd like to do at some point is maybe discuss Craig's book, uh, Time and Eternity. Because it, yep. it deals directly with this. It'd stuff. be interesting to put that against Helm, and uh, Helm's same book is on. I think it's almost the same exact thing. Yeah, it is. I mean, you know, Craig just, actually references Helm quite a bit. I think he's he's reading him and going a little. I, I wouldn't say beyond him, but I think he's uh, Helm is in the context is, is in a broader context that Craig is dealing with. Oh, is he? Yeah. Okay. I haven't read either of the books because, yeah, not not all. Uh, That's not your world. You no, know, it's not my thing. <laughs> <laughs> That's my world. Yeah. Any uh, any other observation? <laughs> this nope. hugely I, I, uh, important concept and, and well, argument. it could always go on, but it probably wouldn't be helpful. So yeah. Hopefully, we all understand the second way. A little yeah, bit I think more. this is the first time we ha- on philosophy of religions we haven't really mentioned Van Til. Yeah, true. I think yeah, it's kind of been exhausted. Yeah. Well, not exhausted, but so but you can probably see Van Til. I said Bavink yeah. a few sure. times. Yeah. Uh, and we'd probably apply the same critiques that we did in the first episode to this. I, I mean, did, there's. I did say presupposed theism. That's come yeah. on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I think you did, Bob. I, you know, that's yeah. that's pretty close. That's almost like a synonym. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, what's on slate for uh, the last? Is I just want to I want to um, go over three, four, and five, and particularly focus on four. So kind of give a cursory account of three and five. But four, if I'm remembering it correctly, is the argument that um, Aquinas really show it. Perhaps you can say shows his colors or maybe slips up or misrepresents himself. But he seems as though he has an univocal uh, predication of uh, a predicative schema for God. That is to say that he can start talking about God like he talks about everything else. Hmm. And normally, I think he, uh, through his, uh, through analogic predication, he keeps a, in the history of, of Western Christianity, a very, a relatively appropriate distinction between creator and creature. One that I think would, we would, uh, you know, be, uh, we would be a very uh, inimical to. But in this one, he kind of slips up. So that's what I want to do next time. Okay, mm. cool. nice. And I also mentioned, um, I, I mentioned uh, Hawking in the beginning. And I'll just point to 
uh, again, this is really recent, and I think the the first recent thing from a reform perspective has come out um, from James Anderson. If you uh, if you search, I don't know, maybe James Anderson. He's a professor at RTS Charlotte, and um, we've had him on Crisis Center uh, pretty recently. He has uh, just a, a very brief thing written up called Stephen Hawking versus God. So if you Google that, maybe we can put the link in the show notes. Um, but that that addresses what we we're talking about before. And I'll also mention, just as a reminder, I I was able to finish now uh, the Untamed God. So um, I think it'd be it'd be good to talk about it. it covers Bart, it covers Hartshorn, and uh, covers essentialism, and uh, does so in the uh, in the analytic tradition. So I'd like to get it to that at some point. If you guys are interested in reading something and kind of want to follow along, that'll come up here um, within the next few weeks or so. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Philosophy for Theologians, and stay tuned to our website for future installments in this series on Thomas Aquinas. Visit us online at reformedforum.org for all of that. You can visit Westminster online at wts.edu, as well as facebook.com slash westminsteronline and youtube.com slash westminsteronline. And stay tuned to all of our live offerings, both audio and video and recorded audio, at reformedforum.tv as we record and as we make them available. All the information is available online. And please remember that we are listener-supported. And please visit our website at reformedforum.org slash donate to help us continue to produce this content and to distribute it to people all over the world. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope you join us again next time on Philosophy for Theologians.